0: Hey, it's Andrew, the Director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today, literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to Season 9 of The Archive Project i'm andrew proctor executive director of literary arts the archive project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in portland in this episode we feature abdul gurna from a portland arts and lectures event in 2022. gurna joined us as part of the american launch for his most recent novel afterlives he had just won the nobel prize for literature in 2021 after a long and distinguished career as a novelist in Britain, though he was relatively unknown here in the United States. In his talk, Gurney describes the rich layers of cultural influence that formed his native Zanzibar, which has been an international trading hub through the centuries, and also his formative decision to move to England as a young man, a decision that would shape his life and his writing. Afterlives is a novel set on the west coast of Africa during World War One that centers the lives of Africans and their struggles to survive the war and its traumas, and then to make sense of their lives in its immediate aftermath. Encountering the work of a writer for the first time can be thrilling. For most readers here in the U.S., the Nobel Prize brought to light not only a writer few of us knew, but one that has been writing profound novels about colonialism and migration for decades. Gurner's work is both beautiful and important, giving a fresh perspective on the recent past and on today. Here's Gurner.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for the uh, welcome, and thank you for your welcome too. It's good of you to be here, but it's great for me too to be here. So often, more or less, every place you go to, I go to, people say, is this your first time in whatever? So just to put you at your ease, the answer is yes. It's the first time in Portland. (laughs) And uh, so I also like to say, um, but how many of you have uh, visited Zanzibar? (laughs) And, you know, you'd be amazed. You'd be amazed the number of times I do get, you know, I can't. See, there's so many of you, but, uh, but you do now and then get a couple of arms going up, and so people do visit us. But we are a small place, and you are part of a much bigger place. Anyway, it's good to be here, uh, especially good because it's part of um, um, the launch of Afterlives in the United States, and uh, an opportunity for me to travel uh, here for the first time. Uh, and uh, talk to you about the book and about uh, some of the um, ideas and thoughts and um, behind it, and perhaps in a wider sense also that inform it in a kind of contextualizing way. Um, okay, so let me let me begin by saying, I'm telling you about an incident that happened just not so long ago, a few weeks ago. Um, so, uh, someone rang me from Zanzibar, uh, the Minister of Tourism, actually, and said, um, I've, got, I've got Mark Horton in the office with me. He would like to have a word with you. So, I had heard of Mark Horton, but had n- never met him. Uh, <clears throat> Mark Horton is uh, an archaeologist who's been working in uh, various parts of uh, the Indian Ocean littoral um, He's been working in Zanzibar, I know for sure, for a good 35 years or so, because I remember when I went uh, back to Zanzibar in not eighty-nine. I went back earlier, but in that particular journey, and someone said, you must meet Mark Houghton. So he was already there then, but I didn't meet him. He was too busy, uh, you know, somewhere underground. Uh, anyway, so there he was at the end of the phone, and he was so excited Because he wanted to tell me something about the dig they were um, in the midst of. If you did uh, visit Zanzibar and you did go, well, you couldn't possibly miss it, but somewhere on the sort of the waterfront, the main promenade uh, in Zanzibar town, stone town as they now call it, is uh, an old fort. and it's called, simply, the Old Fort. Uh, we grew up with the idea that uh, this fort was the work of the Omani Arabs, who had been ruling Zanzibar for a couple of centuries or so until independence. Um, but there, there is something in the way that uh, colonial history is told, particularly where it concerns monuments, that says, what? They couldn't have built that, you know. It must have been built by, and sometimes it's Persians, sometimes it's you know some lost uh, people. Some, but anyway, it's not them. It's not the local people. They couldn't build a thing like this. Uh, and so there's some resistance to this. Of course they built it. Of course they built it. The colonial version was it was the Portuguese who built it. The reason the Portuguese come into it, of course, as many of you will know, is because the Portuguese in uh, Vasco da Gama and all other Portuguese rounded the Cape in 1500 and was the, their first incursion, the first European incursion into the Indian Ocean, um, and it changed many things. But in the process, for a while anyway, the Portuguese managed to establish various colonies in the sense of settlements along the coast and one of those was in Zanzibar Uh, and Mombasa, Malindi and so on all the way up to India. It became contested in due course by other European nations who were also greedy after the things that the Portuguese were greedy for uh, and eventually the Portuguese lost their control of these areas and the British, the Dutch, the French all came in for their share. Uh, of our world. Anyway, what Mark Horton had to tell me was that in this recent dig, he had got, he didn't tell me how deep, or he may have told me, but I can't remember, but he had got to the point where they have found remains of what he's absolutely certain is a Portuguese cathedral. Um, And he reckons that this cathedral is about... 50 meters wide, which is why he calls it a cathedral. It's not a chapel, it's too big for that. And uh, at that level, they found remains, human remains, as well as other kinds of objects. As you know, archaeologists rely heavily on um, being able to identify and understand uh, the objects like pottery, like glass, like this kind of thing. They also found uh, remains of children, and it 's known from the archives that the Portuguese sent Augustinian monks to establish some kind of presence in Zanzibar to convert people, but monks don 't have children, so or shouldn 't so it 's very likely <laughs> things you know sometimes happen but You would expect that if that were the case, perhaps the remains would not have been to, you know, probably would have been got rid of or something like that. So the likelier explanation is that these were converts or people or servants or children, I mean, of converts or of servants. Mm -hmm. uh, Suggesting, in other words, not only the presence of uh, Augustinian monks, but quite possibly a Christian community of some kind. I should say about the glass and the ceramics that one of the um, one of the things that has made the reputation of mark horton as a as a, an archaeologist is this uh, method of analysis that he and his team have established for analyzing objects like glass to the extent that um, they can accurately um, trace styles of manufacture, source material, and even the age, and perhaps even in some cases the, the workshop, not the individual workshop, but they might say this style of um, glass making comes from um, a certain part of southern Iran, uh, and they can do this and if you wish to know the science of it, it's possible to do so because the papers are published and available. I'll tell you about that in a moment. And Mark Houghton's team were able, therefore, to come to the conclusion that the pottery they found at this level, where they found the remains of the cathedral and the various human remains, that they were able to uh, date this as the 16th century, which would be about right, because as I mentioned the Portuguese arriving there in the from the 1500 onwards. But they went on digging as archaeologists do, uh, below that. And as they went down further, they came to even more remains, mostly pottery now, not human remains so much, um, mostly pottery and glass. And this dig a few feet further down, they were able to date to the sixth century of Christian era and were able to trace the manufacture to the source that is a source country to southern Iran, that is to say the Indian Ocean literal uh, of Iran, not the Gulf literal, but the one that's down there. In other words, you have a thousand years between the Portuguese level and this level that they found below that. In the process uh, of doing this, they were able to connect with other discoveries elsewhere, not in this particular dig, where they also found this kind of remain, oh yes, so they could see there is a system uh, of connections, if you like. In other words, this is not just a unique place where this these particular remains were found, but many other places along the coast, all the way down uh, to Sufala, which is now Mozambique, and all the way up to places like Lamu and Pate, which is in Kenya. Above this layer, the 6th century layer we've already seen, uh, and covering this period of uh, more than a thousand years of human activity, they found various comings and goings. I just mentioned, as it, were, the, as it were, the bookends, the edges of it. They found various comings and goings from South Arabia, that is to say, what we now call Hadramut or Oman, um, from Somalia, from Iran, I mentioned, from India, from Thailand, and further east as well. Who knows what Professor Horton will find as he digs further? In addition, as I've already hinted to this archaeological dig, there is abundant evidence on other sites on the island of Zanzibar and other islands around Zanzibar, Tumbatu, for example, where he and his team have actually found a city which has been completely covered up, in other words, uh, a ruined city which they've been uh, digging. Anyway, there is abundant evidence on these various sites of encounters and settlements with travelers from across the Indian Ocean, including the famed armada of Admiral He from China. It's possible you may not have heard of Admiral He. When I first heard of Admiral He, I thought this is like one of the stories that I loved as a child to read in the Arabian Nights. But in brief, Admiral He sailed from China with an armada, literally, I can't remember the number of ships that came with him. And they came because they'd heard stories about this coast of the Western Indian Ocean, this coast of what we now call East Africa. And they wanted to go and trade there and to find out about it. So they came in large numbers and they brought their own artifacts and goods to trade with. um, Some of which are still there in fragments even casually walking along the beach sometimes in places like Malindi and Waitamu you'll see this particular blue pottery which is uh, identified as uh, part of that armada. Only what they found there didn't really grabbed them, really, you know, so they went back home. Uh, they took a giraffe <laughs> as a as a present for the emperor because they found the giraffe such a strange animal that uh, they thought the emperor would be interested in in seeing one. And indeed, when they arrived back in China, the huge crowds. Uh, Welcome them back because they wanted to see this famed animal. Um, and the poor beast was paraded down with crowds of people. I don't know what happened to to it. Anyway, you can find out about Admiral Hay, I assure you. Just Google him. And you, you'll get the full story. I mentioned earlier that if you are interested in, uh, in knowing more um, about the methods of uh, archaeologists in, in doing these analyses, how they do it. Uh, and you can, you can read tables and numbers and that kind of thing. Uh, then there's a, a very interesting book, I think, called The Swahili World, which is edited by Stephanie Wynne-Jones, It was published in 2018, so it's relatively you know up-to-date. And it contains a number of essays I can't remember how many, maybe 30 or so, by scholars from different disciplines, uh, from archaeology, from history, from uh, sociology, contemporary literature, as well as classical Swahili literature, and so on. And it will give you both a picture of this world that I'm giving you just a little clue about, uh, but also give you a more detailed account of their methods, and the even, indeed, the you know the controversies and the arguments that are going on about how is it that cities like Gedi vanished or rather became un- unpopulated? There are a number of these ruined cities along the East African coast. So <clears throat> I start by telling all this not only because this is a lecture, <laughs> and therefore you need some substance and some meat in it <laughs> rather rather than simply a couple of anecdotes or something like that. I start here because I want to give you some idea of the complex cultural uh, reality of where I come from. I grew up with stories of the many connections between us, small island, and uh, places across the ocean. They would have seemed like legends or myths, like Admiral Hay. They would have seemed like legends or myths if I had not seen the evidence of this uh, varied humanity every year and just outside our doorstep. It was mentioned earlier that um, today uh, I visited a school and the conversations that, conversation that I had um, there was actually broadcast live um, on something called Talking, Something." I can't remember the full title of the program. Um, and some of the questions, rather um, surprisingly, kind of anticipated some of the things that I'm going to tell you. <laughs> so, so if anybody was listening to the radio earlier today and uh, happened to hear that, then you'll be hearing it again. Anyway, as I said, some of the stories I grew up with would have seemed like legends or myths if I had not seen the evidence of this varied humanity every year just outside our doorstep. Um, so I'm going to tell you about how this, how this would have come about. And This is, the, this is what we, we call musim in Kiswahili, or what you may be more familiar with as monsoons. And most people think of the monsoons as the heavy rains that come in India once a year. But actually, the monsoons describe or name the, uh, the winds, the trade winds and currents that uh, operate in the Western Indian Ocean, mainly. And these, these are two winds, that is, the northeast and the southwest monsoons. The northeast, as the name implies, starts sort of from that end, of the Indian Ocean and comes this way, towards the coast of Africa, Uh, and the southwest, the other direction, every year, without fail, for who knows, but certainly within human memory anyway. So for hundreds, possibly longer than that, uh, of years, maybe thousands of years, people have been making these journeys um, basically you have a good boat, and you're reasonably good at uh, handling it. You could load your boat with various merchandise at the right time of year, push it out to sea, and the currents and the wind will take you to Zanzibar, if you happen to be in that part of the world, sometime between November and about January or so. You do your business, you do your trade, you buy what there is to buy, hang around, cause trouble, whatever. Uh, By around March, April, the southwests take you back home. This is what we call the musim. And so we lived, me, that is, me and my family, lived near the fort. Um, I've mentioned at various times which this conversation earlier today, whoever, you know, managed to do his research so well, he said, you said you could see the sea from your house. And it's true. So from our house, you could see out to sea. You could see the port, and you could see out beyond that too, whatever. Which also means that when these ships arrived from wherever—from Somalia, from South Arabia, from uh, the Gulf, from India—and sometimes even further afield—they ended up more or less at our doorstep. Um, the uh, the old. These are mostly sailing ships, mostly. Um, and they had a special part of the port, as it were, that was uh, reserved for them. They couldn't come into the main port because they would be there for months and nothing else could come in after they'd arrived. But when they were all in, you could literally walk from one boat to another because they were so closely packed. So there they they were, all these people from these different places, speaking different languages, selling different things. Um, Most of them sailors, most of them, you know, pretty crude customers, uh, loud, noisy, a bit filthy. Um, and they, generally speaking, didn't have anywhere to stay. So they, wherever they found a space, they stayed. They made a camp and they cooked their food and made their tea. And there they were, this great rabble of people. Um, but in some ways, it was, I think, my earliest experience. In every way. Because even as a small child, you didn't even have to ask questions. You just grew up with all these people around you. you know? uh, I think they were my earliest experience of the wider world. And I guess also of its richness and variety. So that's what I meant when I said that um, if I had not... I would have thought of these stories and these places and these names as legends and myths if I had not had this happening in front of me. Every year, for several weeks of the year. This is important to um, to my understanding or our understanding um, of the world we live in, the story of our world, uh, well, the the makeup of our world, which wasn't restricted to um, to I suppose stories told to us by others, because it was there. When later on. Um, we all went to colonial schools, as we all went to, through a colonial education, you, we were exposed to a different way of understanding our world. Um, but it doesn't mean, I'll come to that in more detail in a moment, it doesn't mean that that sense of, uh, of our understanding of the world was ever lost because it was too complicated. There were songs, there were cuisines, there were stories, there were connections, the back and forth marriages, families, etc. Okay, so let me now move a little bit nearer to writing rather than this general uh, conversation about culture. When I, uh, I left Zanzibar when I was 18 years old, this was in the aftermath of the revolution which uh, occurred in 1964 merely a month after the uh, independence, after the British stopped protecting us. We were a British protectorate. Um, Anyway, so when they got tired of protecting us and went back home, um, then we just had a month, and there was a revolution. And the revolution resulted in many things. Primarily, it was to um, remove, I suppose, the sultan and the... Um, to overturn the balance of power between uh, the various races in Zanzibar. The politics of decolonization for us became racialized quite early on. It doesn't mean that there were true racial antagonism, because politics doesn't always depend on truth, but on representation of certain grievances and so on and so forth. In any case, the result of the uh, revolution was the um, killing, detention, expulsion, dispossession, etc., of many, many different communities—Arab communities, Indian communities, etc.—which, which had for a long time been uh, living um, and working and whatever. This is the place. This is the this is their country, this is where they lived in the way I've suggested the comings and goings that I've described. Anyway, various things happened that were really quite, quite difficult. Uh, it was a terror state in a variety of ways. But for, for me, for an 18-year-old, uh, the, biggest, um, the, the biggest thing that persuaded me that I should leave was because they shut the schools. And I said, there's no need for education. Um, and I was 18, and I thought, well, I don't agree. Um, and so I left. So I left um, in a way that you see many people now leaving, young people, taking various risks. It was very risky to leave. It wasn't legal to leave. Um, you see many people taking risks to... To, uh, to leave their countries, to look for something better. We also see many people uh, leaving their countries because they have no choice, because there are wars, uh, because their lives are at risk, their cities are destroyed, um, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in the Ukraine. And you see people leaving their homes because, because their lives are deprived and their lives are unbearable and they look for a better life. What I didn't think of, and I'm sure that's also what's it's also the experience of many of these people that I've mentioned here, is that I didn't think about what I was leaving. I thought about where I was going. And so one of the realizations after going to England was Trying to understand those things, what have I come to, and what have I left behind? And it was, I think, as a as a result of working my way through these um, thoughts and these anxieties and so on, um, anguishes. It was during, it was in that process that I began to write. I think when I started, it wasn't the intention that I would want anybody to read what I was writing. It's in the way of writing, that writing can actually help to, to clarify things, to understand what's going on in your mind. Uh, oh, just to understand. Uh, or sometimes, really, just to, just to kind of wallow in the misery of it all. Uh, because that also can be reassuring in some odd way because you speak about your unhappiness, so you speak about your sadness. So, well, that's how it started. But I've always enjoyed writing, and so it was also a pleasure at the same time, as well as trying to come to grips with things. But it was all secret, which is also the beauty of this kind of writing when you're doing it. It's not for anybody else to see. So you can be as truthful, as miserable, as self-pitying as you like, because it's not really meant for anybody else. Then in due course I found myself kind of fictionalizing this and making a story out of it. And then at some point as this thing grows and you think, well, what, what, what is it? What am I doing? Am I writing a story? And I think when you get to that point that's when you begin doing what I call writing as opposed to writing things down because now you have two things in mind. One is you're shaping it, you're making it into something, and the other is under behind all this is the possibility that one day you might show it to somebody, that somebody might read this. It's not yet mature enough in your mind to say, I'm a writer, or I want to be a writer even, because that's such a big thing to say, Um, but that was the beginning. And then it just went on and on, and then it's... Some stage you've got something you've got to show it to somebody, <laughs> and so that's how I began to write. And but it took a while to persuade people, like publishers, that <laughs> that it was you know worth taking a good look at this. Don't miss the chance. Anyway, so that's how uh, writing, trying to trying to retrieve my knowledge and understanding of what I had left behind. It isn't, it isn't just simply about uh, memory as such. It isn't just about remembering and fixing things. It's also trying to, to understand it, to, to say, why did we do things like that? Or how is it that things were like this? Not all of it good things. Some of it good things. But at the same time, I was also living in the United Kingdom. I was living in Europe. Many surprises for somebody like me uh, to go to Europe. Somebody um, growing up in a, in Africa, in a colony, a Muslim. Young, unskilled, poor. There are a lot of things to learn. Especially uh, <clears throat> when you understand that you're a stranger, all right, and those are the difficulties any stranger faces uh, away from their own home, but you're also not really welcome at all, and that too is something that had to be absorbed and understood and so on. So, so there was some uh, there was a discontent in my understanding of my place in that world because I I felt that where I came from, my culture and so on was simplified by the narratives that existed about me in a place like that. I was also discontented with the, the historical narrative of our relationship with with Britain. In other words, I was discontented with the colonial narrative as it were about who we were and how how they came to us, in what form, doing what and in what way they narrated this. So those really were the two, shall we say, driving ideas behind um, what I was doing, when I, certainly when I started. That is trying to understand what I left and trying to understand this new place and how it relates to me and how it reads me and how I read it. Coming closer to, to this novel, to Afterlives, <clears throat> uh, I wrote a novel which was published in uh, 1994 called Paradise. The first thing I wrote in that novel, which I actually wrote in 1984, was uh, a description of a recruiting drive for the war, 1914-1918 war in our part of the world. Partly because I was always interested in this historical episode and there wasn't very much you could read about it. Sorry, there wasn't very much I could read about it, at least at that time. When I wrote that, I had in mind that I would write something about that war or that episode, sorry, not about the war. I wasn't interested in writing a war novel, but that would somehow be kind of around that episode of the 1914-18 war. Um, I hadn't yet, at that point, published anything. So I was still working on the earlier, the two, or as it turned out, three earlier novels. So this paragraph stayed in my notebook for all of that time until at least, I suppose, seven, eight years later when I had finished the work I was doing, and then I turned to this novel that I was going to write, which became Paradise. But in the meantime, I'd been thinking about how it is that the young man whom I had there about to be recruited into the colonial army as a mercenary of the Germans, how would he have got to that? Why would anybody want to become a, a mercenary in a colonial army? What would have brought that person to that situation? So then I wrote, as it were, the backstory rather than the story of the war, the story of the, uh, the boy Yusuf. And therefore, that paragraph then became the end of the novel that he joins up. So many years later, that was my fourth novel, many years later, many decades later, um, I returned to that moment, if you like. And I've been thinking about things like that, and I've been teaching and learning and gathering uh, knowledge about the true nature of that war, and indeed the fuller sense and understanding of the colonial encounter between Africans and Europeans, both because it was my work, but because it was also something uh, I wanted to know more about, and many of us wanted to know more about, and continue to want to know more about It was, I found out, it was an episode, a historical episode, was largely marginalized from the narrative of the 1914-1918 war. I don't know how many of you would have heard about it, um, but I know that most everywhere I go, now the book is being translated in many languages. um, And I hear from journalists in different places. For most of them, it's a surprise. We didn't know about this, we didn't know about this, and I can quite believe that. Because it somehow or the other largely escaped the popular imagination, if you like, popular knowledge of the First First World War. Even though it's called the First World War, most people are quite satisfied to to know about the events of that war in Europe. Uh, So, why is it the World War? Who knows? So my point was not necessarily to correct that ignorance to say, you didn't know about this. That wasn't my point. My point was that it is something that happened. It is something I grew up with and understood and it matters to people and it's always better to know than not to know. So it was the right moment to write Afterlives. So my, my idea, and I will finish along these lines before I offend the timekeepers, my idea uh, was very much to avoid writing a war novel about heroism, or about you know, the, the strategies of this commander, or that commander, or how it worked out, or something like that. But I also didn't want to leave the context out. I wanted for there to be some knowledge of this. But, but I guess my real concern was about how people who are kind of irrelevant to this war. It's not their war. It's nothing to do with them. Although its outcome will have something to do with them, but they don't know that. It's nothing to do with them. How do they live their lives in the midst of this conflict that's going on around them? How do they continue with what matters to them? In addition to that, I have always been interested in several of my novels. I return to this this condition, if you like, of how people retrieve something of their lives after after traumatic experiences. Um, and of course, traumatic experiences come in all forms. they can be violent in the sense of literal physical violence. they can also be violent in other ways, uh, oppressive, they can be. They can be to do with memories that will not go away. They can be to do with childhood experiences that cannot be forgotten, etc. I had in my mind uh, someone who, remember I was saying about the Yusuf figure who joins up, I had in mind not a Yusuf, but Yusuf I thought would not have been a unique person to join up at such a young age, so foolishly. Without thinking properly about what he was doing, so I had that idea of somebody who would have been drawn into the war for whatever confused reasons and would have been obviously traumatized by the experience, possibly wounded, and he returns to a town to the town that whatever that he used to live in, not really his home and let's see how he recovers. see how he might retrieve something of his life. So I had that idea on the one hand, and I had the idea also, so this is to say, how did people live through the war? And how did people live through that experience of serving colonialism? But on the other hand, I also had an idea of another wounded person who would be a girl, a child, and the way children were also traumatized by experience, particularly girl children. and how she grows up and how she copes. And of course, you can't have a novel where you have two traumatized, wounded people, one a man and the other a woman, and not have them fall in love. <laughs> so their fate was sealed, <laughs> if you see what I mean. Um, but really the the desire was also to from a writing point of view, that is, the desire was to see how it is that these two damaged lives, as it were, can recover, can become better. And of course, two damaged lives does not mean they remain two damaged lives, but possibly they might become two redeemed lives, in a way, if they're able to help each other. So those were the themes. There is a third figure, but I think our time is up. So for that, for that third figure, I'm afraid you'll have to read the novel. Thank you very much.
2: Right, we have some audience questions. I really like this first one because this was one of the questions I had written down for you, too. In your novel, Admiring Silence, the narrator is anonymous. What is the power in anonymity and silence? And I think silence is a big theme for you overall.
1: Well, uh, he's not named, so uh, if that's anonymous, then that's okay. But it's not named because he's narrating the novel. Why would he name himself? (laughs) Fair enough. Um, so, there are two ways of doing this. Either you can have a, a conversation that takes place in which, which he's reporting, in mm-hmm. which he might say, somebody says and names the person, or you could do it like, uh, call me Ishmael, kind of starts, you know? Yeah. Um,
2: but we don't know, he says, call me Ishmael. We don't know if that's his name.
1: No, we don't know if it's yeah. his name. But, <laughs> but it works that he's Ishmael for various reasons. But but in this case, you know, he's—he's just—it's almost like we're, we've caught him in the middle of um, his spiel, as it were. As if, as if, suddenly we, we overhear somebody and he's talking.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, at which point is he going to stop and say, "Oh, by the way, my name is so and so," just in case.
0: <laughs> so, so
1: you- far so as the name is concerned. Uh, I didn't think I was, I was concerned about that. And, and if you wish, you can see symbolism in it, but I wasn't really thinking that. I was thinking, mm-hmm. I was thinking his voice was going to be the thing that drives this narrative. And the voice is strong enough. So uh, I didn't think um, it would be necessary or anybody would ask, so what's his name?
2: Do you, I'm not asking you what his name is, but do you know what his name is? No. I actually really appreciate that, so, okay. Um, we have another question about not afterlives. Um, why did you call your novel Paradise?
1: Yeah, well, you know, uh, there's a, sometimes there's um, a greater, there's an assumption that there's a greater mystery in titles than there really is. <laughs> Uh, I called it paradise because when I started writing it, I was very interested in um, ideas of the garden and paradise. So the opening uh, chapter, for example, of the novel is called The Walled Garden. And it is about, because that's really what paradise means. Its its origin is in in an old Iranian language, paradiza means a walled garden. but it wasn't the kind of walled garden, not the kind of garden you and I have. It would be something like a royal park, mm-hmm. uh, but it would be walled because there would be animals in it. Um, and the the point about such constructions was to put in it as much as is known about what paradise is like: water, bushes, etc. All the various descriptions. They're not that many but all the descriptions of what paradise would be like. So to recreate, in other words, to make a paradise on Earth. Um, So I was reading about this and interested in it and as a way of using that garden idea, as I do in fact in the novel, as another kind of space from that big interior. So a, a walled space on the one hand, and then that big, big landscape of the interior. Uh, but which nonetheless is often described in terms of those features of paradise. So one of the things, like the Kalasinga figure says, that it is said that there is a paradise on earth. You know, these are the kind of stories people tell as they they recreate, you know, the next world, as it were, the next life, you know, the afterlife. Uh, There is a paradise on earth but you can't get in there because it's protected by gates of flame. So nobody can go in there, fine. It means you don't have to prove the point. It's there, but you can't get in there, finished. Uh. <laughs> so the idea of the gates of flame uh, then reappears later in the novel as those red cliffs across the lake, and mm. sort of things like that. The Do reason you- it's called Paradise is because as I was reading this, I put that on my file as the working title.
2: And it stuck. Yeah. And
1: it grew on me.
2: Do you usually, where does the title usually come in for you? Do you start with it? Do you end with it? Is it?
1: It varies. Uh, sometimes I have a, a title that I work all the way through. And then in the end, um, um, the editor says, I don't like this. Mm. <laughs> think again. <laughs> so then you think again. But most of the time, it's something that, that comes fairly early. It changes, Mm -hmm. uh, but it usually, uh, at some point, perhaps a third of the way through or something like that, you think, yes, this is the right one.
2: Yeah, you know there's a moment. Um, So you mentioned in your talk a little bit um, the love story in the novel and I also wanted to talk a little bit about humor in your work, because I think, as we all heard tonight, you do—you are very witty. You're funny. Um, <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm a serious man. What are you, you are, are very mean?
2: serious, too. It's a balance. And so my question is, in your work, like, how do you balance the, the cruelty you're writing about and the really difficult histories with that hope and that humor? And do you think about that during the writing? Or does it just happen magically? <laughs>
1: Well, it's, it's, the humor is, if, if, I don't know if I would call it humor, but anyway, but the way, the absurdity, if you like, of things is around us all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, I suppose if you, if you um, are exposed to banter, which you all are, we all are everywhere, and some of it can be very amusing as a way of cutting down the kind of, self-righteousness and solemnity and that sort of thing. So uh, I think for, for me, humor does that. Mm-hmm. It's a way of, uh, of not sounding as if you're hectoring or, uh, or occupying some high moral ground where you're you know, doing that to people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's always, it's always useful to have at least somebody in the novel who will cut that down so that, you know, so Khalifa does the job here. Yeah. You know, uh, who will actually make sure things don't get too pompous or too mm-hmm. you know?
2: He does a good job. He does <laughs> a good job. Okay. Um, so we have a question from David. What was your process for understanding what it was that you left after you left home? What questions did you ask yourself?
1: Oh, many. Uh, but like I suggested, things like, you know, uh, how was it that this was possible? How was it like that? How, uh, it wasn't a single question. Um, I did wonder when, uh, sometimes about how is it that we couldn't have made it more difficult for our oppressors to oppress us. Um, whether they are the, um, the colonizers or the, the, the new terrorizers of our lives, but, but I suppose we don't have an answer for that because, because, uh, because people who do those things are crueler than we can ever resist.
2: Well, unfortunately, I have many more pages of questions, but we are out of time That's again. That's good. So, But I want to end with one final question that we always ask. I do want to ask you one more question, which is you our traditional she said traditional the time, the time is up. I know, and then it's, she said, it's my first is time. I'm doing my best Andrew, but I'm not Andrew. Um, but we do want to ask, because we have a lot of high school students in the audience, as you heard in the intro, um, we do like to ask what advice you have for our young writers and our older writers in the audience.
1: It's really, really difficult to give advice to writers, apart, as far as I see it. It's far from saying, just keep writing. Um, th- there is I don't think there is uh, any other way mm-hmm. because first of all, you have to find out whether you want to keep doing this when it can be such a disappointing business and such a such a long-term business. you really have to have a sense that you're in it mm-hmm. uh, It's probably true that most people once they once they get involved they're hooked yeah. and so they keep going so if you feel uh, uncertain about it just Keep going, is what I would say is the answer. Just keep going till you really, 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 really know you've failed.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for spending time with us.
1: Thank you.
0: That was Nobel laureate Abdul Razak Gurna speaking at the Arlene Schitzer Concert Hall in September, 2022. This has been Literary Arts, The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for radio and podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson. Special thanks to the literary arts marketing staff, Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community the show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.